Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I discuss cases involving military members and veterans, and sometimes their family members. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Today's case has been burning in my head for a few weeks now. It's the case of what happened to Sean. Someone originally posted about it in the Military Murder Podcast Facebook group, As I typically get so many case recommendations on a weekly basis, I skimmed the Facebook page dedicated to this particular case and I felt really bad. Then a friend of mine and fellow military spouse, true crime podcaster Holly from Crimeaholics was like, girl, are you going to cover this case or what? And by this point, I went back to the Facebook page, the What Happened to Sean Facebook page, and I saw that the sheriff's office had made a statement. I watched all 10 minutes of it. And after I was done, I thought, Wow, that was really weird. So I reached out to the team running the What Happened to Sean Facebook page. Initially, I was just going to do a quick TikTok about this case, but it seemed like the more I dug into it and the more information that I saw and read, that I just, I felt like I had to do a full podcast episode to kind of explain everything that the family has told. And here we are. Join me today as I walk you through the death of 12-year-old Sean Doherty. This case does involve the death of a child and mention of suicide, so listener discretion is advised. Now, let's dig in. My sources for this episode come almost exclusively from the What Happened to Sean Facebook page. I am using verbatim statements from that page and did obtain permission before doing that. I also use reporting by Abby Crank from the Virginia Gazette and Ellen Ice from WTKR. I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that I also listened to the Gone West podcast episode released in early September, which go check out that episode on this case and check out that podcast in general. They're pretty awesome. So what happened to Sean? Sean Doherty is a child of two lieutenant colonels, which is why I am covering it here. Sean Doherty was born on November 8th, 2009. And at the time of this story, Sean was a 5 foot 10 inch 12 year old sixth grader at Tab Middle School in Yorktown, Virginia. He was one of four kids in his blended family. Living in the home at the time were Ramona, who's Sean's mom, Jared, Sean's stepfather, Maria, Sean's 16 year old sister. Then came Sean. Then Sean had two half brothers who were five and two years old. And we cannot forget about Latvian grandma Viha, who has lived with Ramona and her kids throughout Ramona's entire military career, which is lengthy considering that Ramona is a lieutenant colonel. And I should point out that Jared's last name is Rivas. At the time of our story, the Doherty Rivas family lived in a small Hoa community of With Creek Farms on Sandalwood Lane in Yorktown, Virginia. They had been living in this home for a few years now, but of course, we're coming off of COVID restrictions and Virginia... It's one of those places that barely lifted restrictions just like a few months ago. I'm just kidding. But, you know, due to COVID, well, Sean's family had friends and acquaintances like the small chit chat kind. 
Nobody that they were extremely, extremely close with. Well, in the spring of 2022, the family was notified of an impending PCS to the Pentagon and the family readied the house for sale. And if you remember back in April of 2022, the housing market was still hot. So the family put up the house for sale and they got a buyer, but not just any buyer, a buyer who was nice enough to do a rent back to allow the family to get their affairs in order before the PCS. With the big move on the horizon, the family planned a spring break trip and for their destination, they chose a Disney cruise. The trip was marvelous. And when everyone returned from the cruise, everyone was riding high. I am sure there was loads of sleeping because Disney trips can be exhausting. But the family had so much fun that they quickly booked their next Disney trip. It would take place in August of 2022. And this time they were heading to Alaska. This brings us to April 12th, 2022. In order to prepare for their August adventure, on this Tuesday, Ramona took Sean to get his passport renewed at the library. Two days later, on Thursday, April 14th, however, everyone's life in the Doherty Rivas family changed forever. The day appeared to be going well, at least the first half of the day. But as often happens with kids in life, once the kids are prepping to come home, all hell seems to break loose. And I always wonder why that is myself. Sean typically rode the bus to and from school, and sometimes he would get a head start on his homework while on the bus. And on this day, April 14th, that's what Sean did. He eventually got off the bus at about 3.02 p.m. The bus dropped him off a whopping two houses down from his house, so he walked home. When Sean walked into the house, the only two people at the house were Viha and the youngest brother, who was two years old. And just so you know, the little brother was turning three years old in a few weeks. So anyway, so the two-year-old was sleeping on the couch, but just as Sean walked in, Viha asked Sean to watch his brother as she rushed out the front door. You see, just as Sean was walking into the house, Ramona, his mother, had just pulled up to pick up Viha for a medical appointment. Ramona was in the car and she called out to Sean that she would call him on her cell phone on the way out. Ramona told Sean to watch his brother for an hour and that they would be home soon. Sean was cool with that because he loved watching his little brother. And to be honest, he was sleeping anyway. He told his mom that he was going to do his homework, do his chores, and then he was going to play Fortnite with friends. That day, Sean had a school assignment that he had to turn in online. And it was almost as if Sean got home and immediately turned in his homework. Because by 3.09 p.m., Sean uploaded his homework, which included a picture of himself holding up said homework. While Ramona was on the way to the medical appointment with Viha, she called Sean again. This time, she relayed that he needed to wake up his brother because he had been sleeping for two hours. And if the little brother slept too long, he wouldn't sleep at night. Ramona had strict instructions. Wake up your brother, give him a snack and watch a movie with him downstairs. Of course, typical mom style. She caught Sean while he was on the toilet and Sean was like, mom, I'm pooping. <laughs> they laughed and ended the call. Then mom brain set in and Ramona remembered how happy Sean was to play Fortnite with his friends online. So at 3.27 p.m., Ramona called Sean a third time and she told him that she remembered he really wanted to play Fortnite. So she revised the plan. Instead of watching a movie downstairs, bring brother upstairs to the second floor so that Sean could still play his game. During the call, Sean suggested he would let his little brother play on the iPad as he played Fortnite. Ramona thought that was a good idea. She told Sean where the iPad was and told him to set it all up. On April 14th, 2022, while Sean was home alone with his two-year-old brother, 
Ramona and Vija were at a medical appointment. Jared, the stepfather, and the five-year-old were roughly 40 minutes away in Williamsburg at a different appointment, and Maria, the 16-year-old sister, was at a tennis match. Sometime after 4.30 p.m., Maria rushed home because her boyfriend and his mom were on their way to pick her up for the lacrosse game. As soon as Maria got to the house, she tried the front door, but it was locked. Maria rang the doorbell. She knocked. She probably hollered, but no one came to the door. Maria called her mom and was like, Mom, where is Sean? Ramona told Maria to call Sean's cell phone because he was probably upstairs and couldn't hear the doorbell. Maria was probably pissed. She had places to be. Maria called Sean twice. She sent him three text messages, but everything went unanswered. Maria decided she would try the back door. And as she walked around the corner towards the back of her house, that's when she made a gruesome discovery. Maria froze. She wasn't sure if this was real life. There in her backyard was a kid's swing set and hanging from the top bar of the swing set was a person with a bag over their head. Maria had no clue who this person was, but she was terrified. Would that person try to get her? Then she realized the person wasn't moving. Then Maria looked around, hoping to not be alone. And that's when she locked eyes with a landscaper mowing the neighbor's yard. The man looked puzzled and also just kind of stood there. Moments later, when Maria realized she wasn't alone, she walked closer to the person hanging from the swing set and was like, hello, hello. Maria was having a hard time processing everything. But as she looked closer, it became clear to her that the person hanging from the swing set was her little brother, Sean. And that's when it clicked. She needed to get him down from there. As Maria approached Sean, she noticed that his hands were both bound to his waist by a belt. He had a nylon black bag over his head and he was hanging from his chin from what appeared to be a shoelace of sorts. Maria processed that Sean's body was so unnatural because his feet were so close to the floor that he could have easily just stood up and released any pressure from his neck. Maria tried to lift Sean to release pressure from his neck and with her other hand, she got her phone and dialed 911. That call came in at 4.54 p.m. At some point, Maria was able to lift Sean's head out of the shoelace that was holding him to the swing set around the neck. While still on the phone with 911, Maria brought Sean down and performed six minutes of CPR on Sean until, of course, the EMTs arrived and took over. And at this point, you might be wondering why Maria didn't recognize her brother more quickly when she entered the backyard. And it's because not only was Sean's face covered with a bag, but Sean was not wearing his regular clothing. He was actually wearing his stepfather's clothes. Once the EMTs arrived, they noted that Sean's arms were so tightly bound to his waist by that belt that EMTs had difficulty removing said belt. And it was important to remove the belt to administer shocks with the AED. When the EMTs removed everything from Sean's head, he wasn't wearing his glasses. Instead, his glasses were laying on the ground nearby. They were broken and they were missing one of the two lenses. While the EMTs were at the house, they were focusing on Sean as they shocked him with the AED. And at some point, they did get a heartbeat, but they didn't realize till much later that by that point, Sean was too far gone. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. 
My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Maria had called her mom to ask about Sean, but after she hung up, Maria never called Ramona back. She was, in fact, trying to save her brother's life. Ramona was left in the dark, but she was on her way home. As she pulled up to the last light before getting home, flashing sirens raced by her. Ramona prayed, please don't turn right. Please don't turn right. But the emergency vehicle went right. Then, as she followed the sirens and lights down her street, she prayed that they would keep driving past her house. But they didn't. They stopped right out front. Ramona got to the house. She threw the car into park as she ran towards the backyard of her house. There are two gates, one on each side of the house that leads to the backyard. The family never used the gate on the right side of the house, but for some reason, that's the gate where everyone was gathered on this day. Ramona, still in full military uniform, noted that the left gate was wide open. And that's the gate that she used to access the yard. As she approached the rear of the house, she saw everyone gathered under the swing set. And that's when she saw a set of naked legs laying there. The person had on black underwear while the EMTs were trying to revive the person. A police officer saw Ramona and pushed her back, asking her to let the medics do their job. And that's when Ramona fell to her knees and let out that horrific scream. No! As Ramona helplessly looked on, millions of thoughts raced through her head. Why was Sean outside? Did he fall? Was there an accident? And that's when she heard someone yell, heartbeat. The officer then insisted that Ramona move back. And as this was happening, it clicked to Ramona that she hadn't seen her two-year-old. Where was the toddler? Just as she even thought another thought, Maria saw Ramona and ran towards her. They both ran inside the house as an officer followed nearby. As Ramona turned the knob to enter the house from the rear, the back door was unlocked. As Ramona entered the home, she made inventory of everything she saw that was odd or out of place. I imagine in a high-stress situation like this, you get like a tunnel vision and everything kind of comes into focus. As sounds around you sound distant, I mean, I haven't read that anywhere that that's what she experienced, but that's what I imagine. When Ramona entered the home, she saw a few things that were odd. Sean's Crocs were upside down next to two closed garbage bags on the floor. The trash bags appeared to be ready to take out. And that was one of Sean's chores that day. Ramona continued into the house and into the living room. And that's when she saw her toddler hiding behind a pile of laundry on a chair. Ramona yelled her son's name as she scooped him up into her arms. And that's when the two-year-old started to cry. 
Ramona said that he didn't look like his normal self. Ramona went to the front door and that door was locked, just as Maria had said. And Ramona ran out the front door. She saw a neighbor standing nearby with a landscaper. Ramona was frantic. She yelled, what happened? Did you see what happened? The neighbor said no. The landscaper then mumbled, I don't know him. Who did it? Ramona was desperate for answers. She ran to a different neighbor who was also outside mowing their lawn, and that neighbor said he didn't see a thing. Ramona was baffled. A bunch of grown-ass adults out mowing their lawn. Her kid in the backyard. Mind you, she still had no idea what happened to him, but she could not believe that no one saw a thing. The crazy thing is that her backyard fence is only three feet tall, so it's not really a privacy fence so much as it is a land division. Ramona noted that one neighbor had several cameras fixed to his house that pointed into the yard. But as it usually goes, they were all disconnected and hadn't been recording in years. Ramona's mind was racing a million miles a minute. She first called her boss and told him that she thought her son was dead. Some people might find it strange that Ramona first called her boss, but she's military. And honestly, as I've mentioned before, military folks are like family. Ramona's boss said that he would be right over. Then Ramona called her husband, Jared. She was so distraught that she was only able to get out that Sean was hurt real bad and they were trying to revive him. Jared immediately grabbed his son and rushed home. Meanwhile, Ramona watched as Sean was hoisted into the ambulance. Ramona was trying to get into the ambulance with Sean, but she wasn't allowed to. Ramona then jumped into the first responder's fire truck and as it backed out of its spot, up pulled Maria's boyfriend and mom. The boyfriend's name is AJ and his mom is Jamie. AJ and Jamie jumped out of the car. AJ ran to console Maria, who was distraught, and Jamie caught up to Ramona in the fire truck and asked, what the f***? Is he okay? Ramona shook her head no and asked Jamie to watch after the house, to watch after Maria, Vija, and the toddler. As they took off, Ramona asked a driver for an update, and he only said, have hope. He said that because while they were attempting to resuscitate Sean, they did get a few heartbeats. When Ramona arrived at the emergency room, it was as if they expected her clearly, and they guided her through a secure door down to where they were working on Sean. Ramona remembered seeing nurses and doctors three rows deep in the hall, all watching and praying. She saw a woman in scrubs fall to her knees in prayer, tears pouring down her face. As the doctor who was with Sean walked out of the room, the sea of doctors and nurses parted to make way. As the doctor approached Ramona, Ramona just let out a gut-wrenching scream. No! Ramona yelled as the doctor told her that Sean was dead. Ramona demanded to see her baby, and of course, they allowed it. Sean was laying still on the gurney. I imagine it looked like he was probably sleeping. Ramona knelt beside him on his left side as she grabbed his feet and kissed them. Ramona remembers thinking that his feet were so clean and perfect. Ramona knew that this would be the last time or one of the last times that she would see his body. The sorrow and grief was indescribable. But while sorrow and pain had entered Ramona's brain and body, Ramona was a professional and at the same time, her analytical mind had already kicked in as she mentally recorded everything from the moment she arrived at her house after the medical appointment. At one point, everyone else left the room and Ramona was left with Sean and with one other person, a female chaplain. Ramona sat there looking at her son. He was covered up to his neck with a blanket. But Ramona was curious. She wanted to inspect every inch of his body. And I don't blame her. Ramona started her inspection at his face. 
According to Ramona, he looked angelic, peaceful, and she noted his face was flawless, unharmed. There was no swelling. His teeth were perfect. During this time, Sean still had the tube in his mouth from being intubated. He had a C-collar on his neck that the EMTs placed on him at the house, and his eyes were half open. Ramona confirmed that his eyes weren't swollen and they were clear, clear green, as always. Ramona opened his eyelids wide and his pupils were huge. Ramona now coming even more into realization that Sean was no longer living in Sean's body. Ramona brushed her son's hair back as she kissed his forehead and smelled him one last time. She said he smelled musty. Almost simultaneously, Sean's right hand popped out from under the blanket and Ramona instinctively gently grabbed his hand and put it back. Then she grabbed Sean's left hand to hold it just one last time. And as she held his hand, she noticed blood between his fourth and fifth finger. She realized this was likely evidence as she took her phone out and snapped a picture. In reviewing this picture later, which I have not personally seen, but Ramona has, she noticed marks on Sean's wrist consistent with being bound by the belt. Eventually, when Ramona got the medical examiner report much later, however, the Emmy noted that there were no marks on Sean. As Ramona lifted one of Sean's arms to inspect and take a picture, she froze in absolute terror as she let out a scream. Ramona noticed that Sean wasn't wearing the clothes he had been wearing when he got home from school. He wasn't wearing his own clothes at all. Sean was actually wearing one of his stepfather's dress shirts. Ramona's brain immediately started to race. Did someone put this on Sean? Was someone still in the house? The chaplain immediately ran out to get help. It should be noted that an investigator was nearby talking to a doctor. Ramona used her cell phone to call Jamie, AJ's mom, who was at the house. She wanted to tell Jamie that Sean was dressed in Jared's clothes and that she believed someone could still be in the house. Ramona's brain then continued into overdrive as a mental video played in her mind of seeing Sean laying on the ground wearing black underwear underneath the swing set. As she snapped back to reality, Ramona realized that Sean was wearing Jared's underwear as well. As Ramona made this realization, the investigator walked in. Ramona told the investigator about the clothing and Ramona was escorted out of the room immediately because Sean's body was now evidence in a possible criminal investigation. Sadly, in that moment, Ramona would not be able to inspect the rest of Sean's body. And that was the last time that she saw her son up close and personal before his funeral. Ramona stood in the hallway. All she could see were the camera flashes as investigators took pictures of Sean. Ramona was then taken to an empty room. Soon, Jared arrived to console his wife. They both sobbed uncontrollably as they prayed that God take good care of their boy now that he was no longer on earth. Ramona eventually begged to see Sean one last time and she was told no. Ramona sobbed in full military uniform, begging the investigator, please, please, just one more look. And it must have been too much to bear for the investigator because he said, "Okay, fine, one more look. Sean was wheeled out in a stretcher. And as they lifted the blanket just enough for Ramona and Jared to see Sean's face, Ramona cried. And that's when they wheeled Sean away. Back at the Doherty Rivas house, as Ramona left in the fire truck, Maria stood in complete shock. She was distraught by what she discovered. She should be on the way to the lacrosse game, not sitting here her entire life completely shattered. 
at the house, two officers waited for detectives to arrive to begin their death investigation. AJ and Jamie were a blessing in disguise. They consoled Maria, spoke to officers on scene, and tended to the two-year-old. When Jamie received that frantic call from Ramona about Sean wearing Jared's clothing and a potential intruder, Jamie told the two police officers at the house and they said that they would take a look around. They did their search and cleared the house. No intruder in sight. Moments later, a detective arrived and started the investigation with asking Maria questions. She was, after all, the first person who found Sean. Jamie sat next to Maria, who was answering all of the questions. Jamie and Maria recalled that almost immediately, the investigators' line of questioning were all about suicide. The detective asked if Sean had ever tried to hurt himself, and Maria answered truthfully, she didn't think so. They asked her if she ever saw a scratch on his neck, and Maria said that maybe he had a scratch the week before or something like that, but she thought it was from one of the younger brothers. You see, one of the boys is autistic and, according to the family, often grabs necks. The detective asked if Sean had any school troubles, and Maria told the detective that a few months earlier, around Christmas time, Sean was having some trouble with three girls at school who were teasing him. But Maria assured them that that issue with the three girls had been resolved. Maria shared that they had just returned from a Disney cruise a week earlier, and she thought Sean was happy. She said he gave no indication of suicide or depression. Maria insisted that the position in which she found Sean, it was just unnatural. He must have been harmed, she thought. Someone had to have done this to him. Maria told them that the position in which he was hanging, his feet could easily reach the floor. In fact, Sean could have easily stood up on both feet to release the pressure from the thing around his neck. And remember, I told you that Sean was five foot, 10 inches tall. After they were done questioning her, Maria went to a nearby table and sat with AJ. She actually sketched out what she saw in the backyard that day, but the investigators were not interested in her sketch, so they didn't even bother taking it with them for their files. While the investigators were at the house, Jared and the five-year-old arrived. As Jared pulled up to the house, he saw a ton of marked and unmarked cars. Jared ran into the house. He hugged Maria, telling her how much he loved her. Jared handed off the five-year-old to Jamie and Ramona's boss, who was still at the house as Jared grabbed his two-year-old and squeezed him so tight. Jared was well aware that Sean was gone for good at this point. And as he approached his mother-in-law, Viha, he told her that Sean was gone. Viha was devastated as she braced herself with the stairs. She cried out, my little Sean, my sweet Sean. One of the officers approached Jared and asked a few questions. Jared asked the cop, well, what happened? The cop said that he and another officer had arrived and felt that something was off. That's why they called the investigative team. The cop continued, quote, this doesn't sit right with me. I don't think your son did this to himself, end quote. Jared wholeheartedly agreed and said that Sean would never hurt himself. At some point, the investigators had to lock down the house to properly investigate. Everyone was outside now as a neighbor brought lawn chairs over, one especially for Viha, who was an older woman. Neighbors kind of watched from a distance, you know, wanting to know what was going on, probably feeling chills run through their bodies as often happens to me when I see a horrible car accident. Kind of like my morbid curiosity, always wondering what exactly happened. All the while, inside the house and in the backyard, investigators took pictures. While the investigation into Sean's death is already complete, the family has asked and has been denied access to those pictures taken at the house on that day. So during this time, Jared left the house to meet Ramona at the Riverside Hospital. 
Outside the house, a neighbor brought some pizza for everyone to eat on the front steps. The family has mentioned that there was one neighbor in particular, a woman, who was acting skittish. She kept approaching 16-year-old Maria, but something seemed off about her. So Jamie asked the lady to leave Maria alone. At some point, Jamie and Ramona's boss loaded all the kids up in the car and headed to lodging on Langley Air Force Base to spend the night as the investigation inside the home continued. It was 20 minutes from the Riverside Hospital to lodging on Langley Air Force Base. This 20 minutes felt like an absolute eternity for Ramona and Jared. The drive was stoic at times, and at times it was pure chaos, as Ramona painfully cried out for her son as she was coming to terms with her new reality. When they arrived at lodging, long hugs and kisses were exchanged with grandma and the kids and those there to console the family. It was clear no one knew what to say. Almost immediately, Jared's phone rang and he stepped out to take the call as Ramona scooped up her two-year-old who, in typical two-year-old fashion, was jumping on the bed. Ramona asked the child what happened to Sean, and that's when the two-year-old, who was almost three in fact, said the most unthinkable thing ever. He said a friend came over to the house and was punching Sean, and then in a little two-year-old fashion, he made punching motions. Ramona was shocked. Was she hearing correctly? Just then, Jared walked in and announced that the investigators were done with the house and that they said they could return home. Ramona noted that it was almost midnight. Did they even want to return to the house without Sean? A family decision was made to return to the house and they packed it all back up and drove home. As they pulled up to what used to be their idyllic neighborhood on Sandalwood Lane, everything seemed normal. It was well after midnight, but the neighborhood was eerily quiet. And from the outside looking in, it didn't appear that anything out of the ordinary happened there that day. Was this real life or just some sort of bad dream? Jared and Ramona grabbed the kids as they made their way inside the house. Immediately, things inside seemed out of place, but the adults couldn't pinpoint what was different. Everyone gathered in the living room as they all tried to think of next steps. Ramona walked into the kitchen and that's when she spotted a peach in a bowl on the counter. Ramona believed that the peach was in a bowl because that was Sean's favorite after-school snack. She imagined that he was in the kitchen getting his snack ready. But why was it just sitting there? She saw the two trash bags tied up on the floor. Ramona gathered that Sean had gone upstairs to get the mini trash bags from the upstairs bathrooms. She saw Sean's Crocs upside down on the floor in front of the bags. The Crocs thing was weird to Ramona because one, why were they upside down? And because no one in this household was ever barefoot inside. And according to Ramona, Sean couldn't stand walking around barefoot. It was then that Ramona opened the pull-out drawer where the two trash receptacles were located inside the cabinet, and she saw two new trash bags had been placed inside the trash bins. Ramona imagined that Sean was doing his chores. He removed the old trash bags and then put new liners inside. Ramona also saw two additional trash bags on the floor. They were empty but torn. But what really caught her attention was that when she picked up one of those trash bags that were torn, she noticed that the bag was different from the ones she kept at home. This bag had bluish handles. Her bags had red handles. Ramona and Jared then walked upstairs. While upstairs, they noticed that the second level felt really hot. And when they checked the thermostat, it was set to 85. 
Immediately, they wondered who the hell touched the thermostat. Ramona continued towards the master bedroom, and as she walked in, she found another odd thing. Right there, in the middle of the floor between the master bedroom door and the master bathroom, were Sean's underwear. Jared's dresser drawers were also open. Ramona and Jared, at this point, felt uneasy, and they called police and asked them to send a patrol car. Then they locked all the exterior doors and barricaded them with chairs. In this very moment, the couple could not believe that they had never invested in a home security system. They were so caught up in the make-believe safety that nothing like this could ever happen to them. In fact, they were known to occasionally leave the door unlocked. Now, not having a home security system just felt reckless. That night, everyone slept in the master bedroom, but no one really slept. In the night, Ramona got up and walked into Sean's room. She saw his unmade bed and his AirPods on the charging station. The iPad was somewhere in the house on its charger, meaning that Sean never unplugged it for his brother. One of the investigators told Ramona that they found Sean's cell phone in his room, which Ramona found odd. Why wasn't Sean's phone on his person? And where exactly did they find the phone in his room? Another thing that was odd is that Sean never logged on that day to play Fortnite with his friends. In that moment, Ramona grabbed one of Sean's hoodies, hoping that it would provide her some sort of comfort, but it didn't. She sobbed and heaved for hours, afraid that she might never sleep again. As she sat there, she thought, what happened to Sean? Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. On April 15th, 2022, everyone woke up hoping that everything from the night prior was just a bad dream. But it wasn't. Sean was still gone. Jared woke up and called the investigators because he wanted them to come by the house to discuss what they found the night prior. The peach, the shoes, the trash, the underwear. Before investigators arrived, however, Jamie, AJ's mom, arrived at the house with food for the family. That morning, Jamie called the high school guidance counselor to let them know about Sean and to let them know that AJ and Maria would not be at school that day. And to be honest, they might not be there for a few days. The two teenagers might also need some help when they return to school because this was a very stressful situation. The guidance counselor assured Jamie that they would take care of everything and for the kids not to worry about school. 
Jamie was heaven sent for the family. That morning, she started to clean up the kitchen for Ramona. And as she was sweeping, something popped out at her. A large handprint on the window panel on the back door, the one that leads to the backyard. Quite honestly, it was a weird spot for an adult handprint. And the print had like a residue or film on it. Jamie called Ramona over to inspect and Ramona said she would tell the investigator because they were on their way. That morning, Ramona went through all of the trash bags that she owned. She liked to buy in bulk from Costco, so she wanted to know whether the blue-handled trash bags came from one of her stash, but they didn't. After each search, not one blue-handled trash bag in the house. So where did it come from? Investigators soon arrived at the house. Some went upstairs to inspect, some went out back, and then two investigators interviewed Maria and Ramona back to back. The investigators asked about any enemies, bullies, or anything like that that Sean may have had. Then investigators showed Ramona a video of Sean at school the day he died. Ramona said that Sean looked like his typical bubbly self in the video walking down the hall with his friend. That day when Sean went to school, he was wearing a jacket, a flannel, and some shorts. It should be noted that about three weeks after Sean's death, the school provided the picture that Sean had submitted at 3.09 p.m. to investigators. That picture also helped to identify what Sean was wearing that day to school. It turns out that the jacket and flannel that Sean wore that day were later recovered in the home hanging in the coat closet. Also, it should be noted that authorities took Sean's cell phone, laptop, and iPad during their initial sweep of the house. Before investigators left the house on this second day, they asked the family if anyone knew Sean's passcodes for his devices, but they didn't know any of them. Ramona then asked them if they would be speaking to Sean's friends, and the investigators said yes. Then Ramona, trying to be helpful, gave the investigators a list of Sean's friends and contact information, you know, so they knew exactly who his closest buddies were. Oh, and one more thing. Ramona asked the investigators to take Sean's underwear that she had bagged the night before when she found them oddly placed in her bedroom. According to her post on Facebook, the investigators reluctantly took them. She then asked the investigators to take a look at the handprint on the window, the back window. Ramona somehow learned that during their initial search, not one print had been lifted from the house. Ramona urged them to lift this particular print and they agreed telling her that they would send it out for testing. As the investigators were leaving, they advised Ramona and Jared to not disclose details of this incident to anyone. Eventually, when all the investigators were gone, Ramona and Jamie went out back to look around. They couldn't help but look up and count six nearby houses with a second floor with a direct line of sight of that swing set. Yet no one saw anything. Later that afternoon, investigators called to speak to Jared. They had questions about his clothing and also about what Sean was wearing on his head at the time of his death. Investigators told Jared that when they found Sean, he had like a silver kind of grayish bag with black letters. The black letters on the bag spelled S-H-O-E-I on it. The bag, it should be noted, was not a plastic bag. It was a bag typically used to store a motorcycle helmet. Jared immediately recognized the bag as possibly an old motorcycle helmet that he had stored in a pile in the garage. That specific pile was the Goodwill pile. When Jared and Ramona checked the garage, sure enough, one of the motorcycle helmet bags was missing. The other helmet bag was there, but it was missing the string to close it shut. 
Investigators then asked Jared about the clothing that Sean was wearing when he was found. They never showed Jared a picture to properly identify them. They just mentioned what they looked like, and Jared assumed it was a pair of his jeans. With all of the weird things going on, Ramona felt compelled to do something else. And that's when she called the FBI. Rumors on Sandalwood Lane were running wild. No one was outwardly talking about Sean, but it was clear that everyone was talking about Sean. Why hadn't Sean's death hit the local news at least? Concerned members of Sean's community called the sheriff's office wanting to know if they should be concerned. And they were instructed that this was an isolated incident and there was nothing to be afraid of. There was no killer on the loose. The sheriff's office even sent investigators to the high school to assure staff that there was no threat to the community. And Jamie, the family friend that had been helping out the family, well, the day after Sean died, she got a call from the investigator who told her that because this was an active investigation, she was to not talk about the case at all. She was specifically told no calls, no gossip, and absolutely no social media. When Jamie got the call, she was feeling sick. According to her, she hadn't spoken to anyone outside the family about Sean, except for the school guidance counselor to advise about the kids' absences. Over the course of the weekend, things continued to get more and more strange for the family. They were flooded with thoughtful meals and flowers from neighbors. But interestingly, the school had not notified Sean's classmates about his passing. The family received worried calls and messages on social media about people who heard something happened, but they weren't sure what. That weekend, Ramona framed her favorite picture of Sean, and she stood it at the base of a tree in front of the house. Next to the picture, she placed a candle. Soon, neighbors began to leave flowers, trinkets, and other messages for Sean. It should be noted that it was Easter weekend. That Monday after Easter, not even a week after Sean died, an investigator delivered Sean's glasses to the family. Sean's glasses were broken and they were missing a lens that was never found. But the investigator returned the glasses because they thought that the family might want to bury Sean with his glasses. That same day, a representative from the sheriff's office visited all of Sean's classes and spoke to his classmates about suicide. And then the sheriff's office representative informed everyone about Sean's passing. The next day, that Tuesday, the school principal sent out a pre-recorded message informing the families that Sean had passed away and also informing them that grief counseling was available. An email soon followed echoing the same remarks. At one point, all of Sean's sixth grade teachers got on one call to Ramona. They all expressed their condolences first. And then they expressed their doubts that Sean committed suicide. They pointed to Sean submitting his homework that same day after arriving at home. He was happy and in a great mood that day, they all said. During the days after Sean's death, parents who had been interviewed or who had allowed their kids to be interviewed reached out to Ramona to inform her that the investigators only appeared to be looking at the case from a suicide angle. At the time that this was going on, Ramona and Jared both went out and canvassed the neighborhood. They were looking for home security footage and asking those same neighbors if the police had been by with questions about said footage, each of those neighbors responding no. Someone in the community posted on the HOA social media group asking for video surveillance, you know, like security footage. And someone actually posted a still image from their home surveillance video. The camera was angled towards the front of Sean's house 
and outside the house was a landscaper's truck. The video was timestamped at 4.36 p.m. on April 14, 2022, which would have been just 13 minutes before Maria arrived home. Sean's death was officially ruled a suicide. As Sean's family attempted to get answers about the investigation, they had been met by naysayers who believed they were just a grieving family who couldn't get over that their son committed suicide. But that wasn't the case at all. The family just felt like there were too many unanswered questions, and they still feel this way. Why would a boy about to commit suicide make himself a snack yet not even take a bite? Why would a boy who was about to commit suicide submit his homework on time? And why would a boy who was about to commit suicide prepare to do his chores? And why would a boy about to commit suicide leave his Crocs upside down? Also, are they to believe that either after or before Sean did these chores, that he then went into his parents' room, changed into his stepfather's clothes, went into the garage, grabbed that black bag, removed the lace from the other black bag, went into the yard barefoot, miraculously had clean feet, even after trotting through grass. Then he proceeded to hang himself with a string that wasn't even that tight around his neck. In fact, the What Happened to Sean Facebook page says the string was around his chin. Then, allegedly, after he was hanging, this young boy tied a belt tightly around his hands, immobilizing himself. I mean, listen, I am not a conspiracy theorist, but this all does sound weird. And if I was a parent, I would be questioning it as well. And what about the little brother who said that there was a man chasing Sean and punching him? Well, after months of being told that they were crazy, that they needed to just move on, Sean's family decided enough was enough. Their silence had bought them nothing. So, they took to social media with the What Happened to Sean campaign. On the streets of Sandalwood Lane, houses bore what appeared to be political campaign posters. But instead, it was giant posters that said What Happened to Sean, with Sean's gleaming smile pictured as well. I've been working with the moderators of the Facebook page to bring this case forward to all of you, my true crime army, as Sean's family is trying to get a second set of eyes on Sean's case. At the time of this recording, the family has a change.org petition that has garnered over 20,000 signatures. So the social media campaign that the family has put forward is working. The Facebook page was created in July. The first post was made on August 19th, four months after Sean's death. It was through an initial video of Ramona telling the public about her son's death and all the inconsistencies and 11 subsequent posts that I learned all of the above facts, most of them taken verbatim from the post with the family's permission, of course. The first post read in part, on April 14th, 2022, Sean Doherty passed away unexpectedly at his home in Yorktown, Virginia, under suspicious circumstances. The post gives us more information about Sean and then goes on to say, quote, never in our wildest dreams, specifically in 2022, did we think that an investigation could be so biased and assumptions based? We have been dismissed repeatedly. They will tell you we are crazy, unable to let go. They will tell you it was suicide and it's a cut and dry case. They will say suicide never makes sense. All we ask is that you pull up a chair, hear us out and come to your own conclusion. 
We think you'll agree that there are way too many things that don't add up. Help us find what really happened to Sean, end quote. As a True Crime Army may know, if you've been a longtime listener, I try really hard to not be a conspiracy theorist. And I try to believe that investigators will always do the right thing. But I also know that sometimes cases are overlooked. Well, as I was going through everything, I found the York Procosin official response to the family's social media campaign. I'm going to play it for you in its entirety. It's about 10 minutes. It was posted on the Facebook page, on their Facebook page, not the What Happened to Sean Facebook page, but on the Sheriff's Department Facebook page. And it was posted on August 23rd, just a few days after the social media campaign began. You will be hearing Major Ron Montgomery's voice with the York Pocoyson Sheriff's These Office. These have caused concern in the community that the death of a 12-year-old on April the 14th, 2022, has not been fully investigated by the Sheriff's Office and that there may be a killer in our area that poses a threat. Nothing could be further from the truth. It has been the longstanding policy of the York Pocoyson Sheriff's Office to not release information relating to cases of suicide, particularly those cases that involve children. We do everything within our power to preserve the privacy of the grieving family. We take these matters very seriously, evaluate all evidence, and consider all possibilities. The York Pocotian Sheriff's Office is aware of a recent social media site created to provide the public with theories surrounding the death of this 12-year-old. Much of the information being posted to this social media site is opinion, innuendo, and fabrication which is not consistent with the evidence that was collected by Sheriff's Office investigators during their investigation. Once that evidence was collected, it was submitted to the Department of Forensic Science for evaluation and later to the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. By law, in Virginia, it is the Chief Medical Examiner's responsibility to determine the manner and cause of death which they, the Chief Medical Examiner's Office, determined to be a suicide. In addition, the sheriff's office met with the family on multiple occasions and gave them the opportunity to discuss this investigation. Additionally, an offer was made to have a group meeting after the findings of the chief medical examiner's office that would include the family, members of the York Pocotian Sheriff's Office, and the office of the chief medical examiner. As of this date, the family has not expressed interest in scheduling the meeting. Instead, they chose to post this video publicly. There were several key points that were made in this video that the sheriff's office will address. First, in the video, the mother said, they have told me a few times that they really don't know how to investigate this kind of murder case because it's really complicated. The implication being we, the York Pocotian Sheriff's Office. That statement is absolutely not true and was never made to this mother. Our investigators are recognized in the Hampton Roads area as professional, caring, competent major crimes investigators. They have investigated and solved numerous cases that include homicides, suicides, rapes, and robberies. They have several decades of investigative experience within the division. The investigation divisions consist of graduates of the Virginia Forensic Science Academy, which has certified them as crime scene experts. Along with processing the scene and interviewing witnesses and the family, Investigators interviewed a significant number of people to include surrounding neighbors, lawn care personnel, school officials, friends of the 12-year-old, and other community members. 
The results of these initial interviews did not identify any potential suspects. Also during the course of this investigation, the family provided information on individuals that they believe may be involved in the case. Their suspicions were based on people that they merely believed to be in the area at the time of the incident. These individuals were all located, interviewed, and ruled out as persons of interest by Sheriff's Office investigators. The evidence collected and documentation shows many discrepancies in the version that was put forth on the family's page. The videos and photos you see on their social media site are not from the actual scene. They have been fabricated. First, the video of the man walking in front of their house is from one month after the incident, not the day of the incident. Two, the blood spatter image depicted in the video was not from the scene. However, we went back to the home on May 20th, 2022 at the request of the family. During that visit, the mother pointed out a red stain on the wall in the upstairs area of the home. Investigators photographed that stain, that stain on that date. Later, investigators reviewed the photographs that were taken on April the 14th, 2022, the day of the tragedy, and that stain was not present on that wall on April the 14th, 2022. In the mother's video, she states that her two-year-old child witnessed the events that occurred in the house. During a recorded interview on April the 14th, 2022, between the mother and sheriff's office investigators, she stated when she left the house the afternoon, that afternoon to take her mother to an appointment, the child was asleep. When she returned home after the tragedy had been discovered, she is quoted as saying to the sheriff's office investigator, quote, thank God he was still asleep, meaning the two-year-old. The information that she stated in her video about the two-year-old has never been disclosed to the sheriff's office. In the mother's video, she states there was mud in the backyard, even refers to it as swampy. And she noted that there was no dirt on the 12-year-old's feet. Images from the day of the incident on April the 14th show that the grass was not wet and the yard was not swampy. There have been many statements on this website regarding the alleged staging of the scene. The photo of the backyard displayed on the social media site shows a swing set and a chair. It's important to note that the swings that are wrapped over the top post of the swing set and the chair were moved by York County Fire and Life Safety personnel in order to create enough space to render life-saving measures. The chair was moved from its original location under the swing by Fire and Life Safety personnel where the child, the 12-year-old, was hanging to the front of the swing set and the swings were moved to provide workspace. Our investigation determined that the chair was originally located on the deck at the rear of the home and was moved to the swing set area. Also during the course of our investigation, DNA samples were collected from the cord that the 12-year-old was found suspended from. This cord was not a shoestring. It came from a motorcycle helmet bag that belonged to the stepfather that had been previously located in the garage. The 12-year-old's DNA was the only DNA found on this cord. Specifically, the DNA swabs were taken from the knot placed in that cord and the only DNA on that knot belonged to the 12-year-old. In the video, there is an allegation that members of the YPSO, the York Pocosian Sheriff's Office, washed blood from the 12-year-old. At no point did any member of the Sheriff's Office clean or remove any blood from the scene or the child. 
At the hospital, investigators placed bags over the 12-year-old's hands prior to him being transported to the medical examiner's office. This is common practice to prevent the loss of any potential trace evidence. Based on the fact that the family was telling us that neighbors had information that they were providing to the family about possible suspects, our investigators went back to interview those neighbors and none provided any additional information or new investigative leads. There is a statement in the mother's video about the unusual location of the 12-year-old's underwear. The clothing that the 12-year-old was wearing when he was located that day belonged to his stepfather to include the stepfather's shirt, pants, belt, and stepfather's underwear. The 12-year-old's underwear were found in the same room where his stepfather's clothes were kept. In the video, the mother states that someone from the York Percussion Sheriff's Office sent her a text that stated, quote, time to move on. To our knowledge, that statement was never made. We have done some research and have not been able to locate a text message telling the family to move on. The only text similar to this was a text between the investigator and the mother where the mother states to the investigator, quote, it is time to heal. Several theories were presented to the sheriff's office investigators by the family. The first theory provided to the family about what happened that day stated that they believed that this was a burglary, and during the burglary, their 12-year-old was sexually assaulted and murdered. However, sheriff's office investigators found no evidence of an intruder, and laboratory and medical evaluations of forensic evidence sent to the laboratory found no signs of sexual assault. The second theory presented by the family was that this was carried out as a military-type operation directed at them, the family, due to their rank in the United States Air Force. And finally, they identified three different people based solely on speculation that they frequented the neighborhood. All three of these people were located, and Sheriff's Office investigators eliminated them as persons of interest in this incident. We did not address every inconsistency or fabrication from the social media site. We conducted a thorough, professional, and exhaustive investigation. There is nothing whatsoever to indicate that there is a, a killer in our community. As I stated at the beginning of this video, it is our policy not to discuss these issues in public particularly when they involve children. However, the social media site has caused great concern within our community. We still extend an invitation to the family to meet with members of this agency and the Office of the Chief of Medical Examiner to discuss the results of the autopsy and our investigation. By the time that the Sheriff's Office made this public statement, the family had made a handful of Facebook posts. I think in listening to the Sheriff's Office response, what caught me off guard was when they said that they had invited the family to talk to them and the family had declined. I have since been told by the Facebook admin that this is incorrect. The family never declined to come in and talk to them at the time that the sheriff made this statement. In fact, the family has met with the sheriff's department on numerous occasions. I think the issue with this case is that the sheriff refuses to release their files to the family. And they mentioned that due to sensitivities or whatever, because this case involves a child, they won't be releasing it. But I think in a case where the family is the one asking and the department has clearly made a ruling that they should release it. After this public statement, the family began a change.org petition asking for an independent agency to investigate the case. 
The family also responded in kind to the sheriff's office, quote, official response, end quote, calling it cold, uncaring, and defensive. The family also addressed a few things from that video, specifically the fact that over the course of several weeks after Sean's death, the family recorded the outside of their home to see if anyone would revisit the crime scene. There is, according to the family, one individual who was filmed numerous times throughout several nights just kind of walking by the house. With regards to the two-year-old, no one really knows if he was sleeping the entire time after Ramona left and when she arrived back. When Ramona first spoke to the investigators who were at the house, Ramona initially assumed that the two-year-old was asleep, but it wasn't until she met up with him much later that he said that thing about the man punching Sean. And according to Ramona, she did disclose this statement to the investigators. There are other clarifications that the family made, but some that I haven't mentioned already are the fact that Sean didn't leave a note and that he was never searching online on how to commit suicide. The family ended this response post by stating that they just want another agency to look at the case and provide a second opinion. When Ramona told Sean and the rest of the family that they would be moving to the D.C. area so that she could work at the Pentagon, Sean jumped up screaming with excitement and said he couldn't wait to tell his friends that his mom worked for the Pentagon. Sean asked Ramona if he could visit the Pentagon with her, specifically so that he could buy some milk chocolate candies with the Pentagon stamped on them. After Ramona PCS to the Pentagon without Sean, she went to the chocolate shop and bought one of those candies. She placed it right next to Sean's picture because that is what he wanted after all. In the end, Sean's parents told the Virginia Gazette, quote, We're not investigators. We're just parents that lost an amazing kid. No matter what, no one can argue that he doesn't deserve a second shot, end quote. If you have any information that could aid the investigation, please send your tip via email to whathappentoshawn at gmail.com or you can call the tip line at 804-905-8613. Before I let you go, I do not want to dismiss a discussion of preteen and teen suicide in this episode, even if it's not what happened in this case. In looking up statistics about suicide in this age range, HealthyChildren.org reported that in 2021, emergency rooms noticed a sharp rise in 12 to 17-year-olds needing treatment for suicidal ideations or actions. A recent federal survey, according to the website, revealed that 4 in 10 high school students reported feeling persistently sad or hopeless, while 1 in 5 said that they'd actually thought about suicide. Our kids are affected by suicidal thoughts the same as adults. If you're trying to navigate how to talk to a preteen or a teen about suicide, be sure to reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Just to reiterate, if you have any information that could aid in Sean's investigation, please send your tip via email to whathappentoshawn at gmail.com or contact the tip line at 804-905-8613. I also highly recommend that you follow the What Happened to Sean Facebook page because they give additional details every few days. 
Also, I do believe that Sean's family is pushing hard that this will make national news. So be sure to follow me on social on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and on TikTok at Military Margot with a T at the end, where I will provide any major updates when they pop up about Sean's case. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. This month's executive producers are Jen, Tina, Alicia, Bob, Falcon 13, and Nicole. This month's newest associate producer is Christy. This month's newest assistant producers are Leslie, Claudia, Jennifer O, Madlene, and Tiana. The music was created by TyApps. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. Mama's working on her podcast. I don't want to.